0: Aren't you just a sight for sore eyes? Of all the movie and TV joints and all the towns and all the world, you walked into mine. How lovely. Come, sit. Let me pour you a drink before we begin the showing. You know, I think that this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Cheers. Here's looking at you, Phil. Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki, and I feel revived. It is March. Uh, I'm hoping for some warmer days here in Brooklyn soon. And I recently saged my house completely. So hopefully we can get some good energy flowing in here too. Now, it's the start of Women's History Month. And um, this month we're gonna be talking about a couple of films that have to do with women, as you may think. And I wanted to start the month off with a classic that highlights the beauty and hardship of the feminine experience, particularly for Black women. Today, we're gonna be discussing Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple. The Color Purple is a 1985 American epic coming of age period drama film Directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Menomius. It's based on the 1982 novel, The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And this was actually Spielberg's first departure from his normal summer blockbusters like Jaws and E.T. And also his first venture into working with a different music composer. He usually worked with John Williams, but he was actually brought into the film by its producer and composer, Quincy Jones. Spielberg kind of felt that his knowledge of the Deep South was inadequate and that the film should be directed by someone of color, so he didn't want to do it at first. Now, Alice Walker, the writer of the original novel, had her hands all up and through this film because she wanted to make sure that the Black characters were depicted with honor and that the staff working on the film was at least 50% Black or minority. She was also skeptical about Spielberg, but she was actually convinced otherwise after watching E.T. and felt that he was a brilliant director for this film. Spielberg actually waived his usual $15 million salary and um, took the Directors Guild of America minimum of forty k for this film. So he took a lot less money than he usually took to direct this beautifully Black classic film. So um, I kind of give him a little bit of props for that. Now, this is an all-star cast as we know them like now. Goldberg, when Whoopi Goldberg auditioned for Steven Spielberg and Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson were also there, um, her audition was her performing a routine involving E.T. being high being arrested for drug possession. Uh, At this point, she had only been in one film and she was only really known for her stand up. Oprah was literally just a radio and TV host at this point, but Alice Walker insisted on casting her for this film. She wanted to hire non-well-known actors to sort of mirror the growth from obscurity that her characters went through in the novel. And we know a lot of these actors immediately by name now. So it's interesting knowing that these were all relatively unknown people back in the 80s when this film was made. So our cast list is Whoopi Goldberg as Celia Harris. Um, Desretta Jackson plays a young Celie Harris for about a third of the film, and she does amazing. Uh, Danny Glover plays Mr. Albert Johnson. Oprah Winfrey plays Sophia. Margaret Avery plays Suge Avery, um, but the singing voice is actually Tata Vega. Um, Akusa, Akosua Busia plays Nettie Harris. Adolph Caesar plays um, M- Mr. Johnson, which is Mr.'s dad, like old Mr. Okay. Um, William Pugh plays Harpo Johnson, uh, Mr. Sun, uh, Ray Don Chong plays Squeak, Lawrence Fishburne plays Swain, Carl Anderson as Reverend Samuel, Grand Bush as Randy, Dana Ivey plays Miss Millie, Bennett Goolery plays Grady. James Tillis plays Buster. And Leonard Johnson plays Paul Harris, who is Celie and Nettie's dad. So a lot of these faces, if you watch this movie... You'd probably recognize a lot of these faces from movies and shows from the late 80s, um, throughout the 90s and the 2000s, um, even beyond Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. Even some of these names that you may not recognize, you'd recognize their faces if you saw them. Now, Spielberg had actually pursued um, Shaka Khan and Tina Turner to play Suge. Avery but both of them ended up turning it down um Patti LaBelle and Cheryl Lee Ralph actually auditioned and Phyllis Hyman was also considered um and even though um Margaret Avery who played Suge Avery had some singing experience experience they actually had her singing voice dubbed by Tata Vega now that we have our players let's press play our film begins with the sound of birds, crickets, lovely outdoor sounds. There's purple font on black te- on a black screen that tells us that this is a Steven Spielberg film, The Color Purple. The cast list is accompanied by no music, only the peaceful sounds of the outdoors. Faintly, we hear the sound of two girls playing a patty cake game, but with these words, Me and you are never part. Ma da da, me and you must have one heart, ma ki da da, ain't no ocean, ain't no sea, ma da da, keep my sister away from me, ma da da. They laugh playfully as the film fades in on a beautiful garden with purple flowers. We see two young girls frolicking through these flowers. One girl in a blue dress is running full speed ahead, carefree and full of laughter. This is Nettie. The other, older, wearing brown, is a little bit more subdued, holding her hat as she struggles to keep up. This is Celie. Now, never one to leave her girl behind, Nettie turns around and runs back for Celie, grabbing her hands and encouraging her to run faster. She's having a pretty hard time running now. Probably because... She's pregnant. Pregnant, pregnant. She stops for a moment to catch her breath, but just then her father emerges to tell Celie and Nettie to head back in for supper. Casually, this man looks at Celie and says she has the ugliest smile on this side of creation. And she hurries up to cover her smile, but Nettie grabs her hand and pulls it back down. Don't cover your smile, sis. Now I have to mention that um, they're probably about 11 and 13 at this point, And Celie is 13 and pregnant. We quickly jump to Celie wailing her way through childbirth on a winter night in 1909. So there was no epidural and sis had to give birth at the house. And like I said, she's about 13. And Nettie is trying to do what she can with water and towels. But child, what? What is that going to do with a baby coming out of a 13-year-old? Their dad comes in during this painful birthing and says, ain't you done yet? Sir, sir. But Nettie smiles. She has a girl, a beautiful girl. And Celie pulls this little girl up to her chest, only to have the child pulled from her arms and taken from her. He says, you better not tell nobody but God it would kill your mama. And Celia is devastated because that's her baby that she carried in her belly for nine months. But the daddy is her daddy. And I know y'all know that wasn't a consensual encounter. You gonna do what your mama wouldn't. That's what he said to her before he took her innocence the first time. By the time she was 14, she had birthed two children, a son and a daughter, both taken from her. We find this out through voiceover while she and others process to bury her mom. She keeps hoping that her dad will remarry, but now he's starting to be real creepy with Nettie. Of course, Celie is worried for her little sister since she knows what her father is capable of. Well, her father finally marries a girl named Gray, who's about the same age as Celie, about 14. Now, everybody is always looking at Nettie, calling her pretty. But there is this one man who is always, always looking at her. They call him Mr. Well, Mr. comes riding up to the house and asks if he can marry Nettie, who, like I said, is about 11. His wife done died. and He don't have anybody to look after his kid. Their dad says he can't marry Nettie. She's too young, but he can have Celie. He says she's ugly and spoiled twice, asshole. But he says that Celie will do whatever he needs. She's basically a workhorse and he can treat her however she wants, but he can't have Nettie. Not now or ever. So Mr. asks if he can have another look at Celie since he ain't never really paid her no mind. Now, I'm not finna sit here and talk about her because I think that the girl that played Seeley was really pretty, but I know that the idea was that she was not, in this novel, was that she wasn't supposed to be that attractive. Um, she's still young and making faces at Nettie through the window while Mr. kind of just looks her over. He ain't happy, but I mean, he'll take her. He needs somebody to take care of his house. So he rides his horse, back to the house and makes Celie walk behind him carrying all her own bags in the snow and like I said she is like 14. They get to the house and the kids his kids are already outside and he tells them that this is their new mama and the oldest boy Harpo who at this point is probably about eight says she ain't my mammy and throws a rock at her head. And Mr. starts chasing the kids with a belt and the kids laughing because, you know, they ain't got no sense. And Celie is literally bleeding out of her head on the ground, y'all. And literally nobody cares. She leaves a big red handprint on a rock covered in her blood. No one cares. Now, I just told y'all nobody cared. Now, that night with a bandage around her head because she done got knocked out, Mr. just... Does his business on top of her, you know, he he does it to her, and it's certainly it's not sex. What's happening? She sneezes in the middle of it, and he just kind of like covers her mouth. She doesn't cry or anything. She just tries to think happy thoughts, tries to think of Nettie, and just tries to get through it. And she looks over and sees a picture on the nightstand of a beautiful smiling woman. And she knows that whatever Mr. is doing to her, and he's done that, he's done it to that lady too. And I mean, maybe she likes it, but Celie don't. The next morning, Celie wakes up to get the house in order and it is in shambles. Mr. doesn't clean and clearly the kids are horrible. So this place hasn't been cleaned since their mom died, but she gets to work. Cleans the place from top to bottom. Everything. Now, she's trying to comb the daughter's hair, but it literally hasn't been combed since their mom died. And this little girl is probably about five. Mister's telling her to shut this little girl up, but obviously pulling through this, very tangled hair that has not been combed in many months is hurting her. So Seely tells Mr. that she may need to shave this this hair off. And she can't stop this girl from making noise. It's hurting her. Mr. has a bright idea. He gets up and slaps Seely in the face for talking back to him. Hmm. So now it's been a few months. Seely's in town and she thinks she sees a baby that may be her daughter, Olivia that she hasn't seen literally since she birthed her and was snatched from her arms. She starts following the woman holding her, trying to get a closer look. And eventually she asks her a few questions about who the daddy is. And she says, oh, his name's Samuel. And then she asks to hold her. And she starts to rock her and hold her affectionately, even asking what her name is. And the mom says her name is Pauline, but she calls her Olivia on account of her old eyes. And, of course, Celie doesn't want to let her go because she just knows this is her baby. But she does. Back at home, Celie gets a huge surprise. Nettie! She says she couldn't keep her dad off of her, unfortunately. So she wants to know if she can stay with Celie and her new family. Well, of course, Celie is happy to see her. And happy to have her. And so is Mr. Because she be kin now. And while they're out hanging up clothes on the clothesline later, Nettie notices that the kids basically just run over Celie and she tells Celie she has to fight. And Celie says all she knows how to do is stay alive. Ooh, Lord, that's a word, honey. So Mr. comes out to tell Celie that the kids need their supper, but not before telling Nettie how pretty she looks. Baby girl has literally left the lion's den just to end up in the lake with a crocodile. It is so sad. But late at night, they stay up like two young girls. Because that's what they are. Giggling and joking about Mr. and how mean he is to Celie. And how she said he said you need to do the washing, cleaning. And you need to take care of the chilling. You need to cook my supper. You need to shine my shoes. All the things that Mr. asks her to do. but always. Want to be up under Nettie. Now, you know, we always going to laugh at boys no matter what. Like, it's just in us. Especially when young young teen girls who are like 12, 14, 15 years old. Of course, they're going to giggle. But they know that eventually Mr. is going to make his move on Nettie. And so they go ahead and make a plan. Nettie goes to school, learns to read, and then comes back and teaches Seely how to read so that when they inevitably get separated, they can write to each other. And this is something we're going to discuss later. But however, unbeknownst to them, Mr. is outside listening. Well, sure enough, Nettie starts teaching Seely words. She writes the words down and puts them on whatever it is. So the word apple sits on the apples. Kettle sits on the kettle. Like flashcards in real life. And they're having a blast spelling and saying words. S-L-E-E-V-E, sleeve. H-A-I-R, hair. W-I-N-D-O-W, window. Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R, period. His mean ass had to pop up and ruin their fun. Anyway, Celie was getting better and better. Even was reading books like Oliver Twist. But Mr. always got his eye on Nettie. One day, Nettie is headed off to school when she notices Mr. following behind her on his horse. And she's walking. And he goes around on one side of some trees while she goes the other way. And he's mad creepy, not talking, not saying anything, just tipping his hat at her through the trees and smiling. And she's clearly trying to hurry away. She gets to the other end of the trees and the horse comes out, but no mister on it. But she just keeps walking and he comes out laughing, kind of circusy, sort of like, um, like he's trying to be fun, even have flower petals fall out of his hat when he takes his hat off. And she keeps saying she has to go to school. I have to go. I have to go to school. But Mister starts to twirl her and try to make her kind of dizzy. And then he tries to pull her behind a tree and take her. But she runs screaming like a thief in the night, even tossing her books out of her bag because she hit him in the fucking crotch and ran away. Yes, queen. But of course, Mister is livid. So, he throws her out. Celie begs him. Nettie begs him. Nope. This shit is heartbreaking. They're trying to hold on to anything so Nettie can stay. And Mr. is literally dragging and throwing them like rag dolls. He throws her out. She looks at him and says, why? Why? It's so heartbreaking. Now, she already says she was never going back home with her dad. Vasili tells her to write, and Nettie says, nothing but death can keep me from it. This is the first scene that makes me cry every time I watch it, and this is only about 30 minutes in. Now, as Nettie leaves from a distance, they start to, me and you must never part, my key, die, die. Die. me and you must have one heart. Baki, da, da, da. Oh my gosh. And Celie is alone again. Not physically, because she got all these kids and Mr. at the house, but mentally alone. But Mr. wants to shave. In two days, Suge is coming, the smiling woman from the photo in his room. And as Celie pre- preps the blade to shave him, he grabs her wrist and looks her in the eye. You cut me, I'll kill you. Literally terrifying. But Celie sees the mailman come and she's excited. Cause there may be a letter from Nettie, right? It's really all she has to look forward to. And she sees some letters being put in the box and she nicks them. Shit. But he's happy because he's waiting on a letter from Suge. It's here. And she ain't coming. So now of course he's pissed. And Celie asks him if a letter came from Nettie, but he tells her. There's nothing, and she better not ever mess with the mailbox. All she can do is sit and cry and practice reading her books. Now, over time, she gets better, much better. It's 1916 now, seven years later, and Seeley has grown, and now Seeley is Whoopi Goldberg. Mr. is excited because Suge is actually coming into town. Now At this point, Celie is used to Mr.'s yelling and mess. And he comes yelling for things and she has them ready before he can even get it out. He comes, he's like, where's my, and she's already holding the sock. Where's my, already holding the watch. She got it down pat. So Celie helps her husband get ready for a date. She stays home to clean. She's also been waiting all this time for a letter. No luck now mr's son harpo is in love with a big girl named sophia who was played by oprah which is interesting enough harpo spelled backwards Hmm. so harpo has brought sophia to the house to meet his dad and she's already big and knocked up and mr asks how harpo knows he's dad and she says because he the only one mr is being an asshole and says He not just going to let Harpo marry her just because she pregnant. So she's like, um, what does Harpo have that I need? He live with you. He get everything but you. It ain't for money, obviously. So Mr. and Sophia have a little spat. Sophia goes to leave Harpo, but tells him not to keep her waiting for too long. But eventually they marry. And the infamous black bride quote is spoken. I's married now. I's a married woman. (laughs) If you... Are in black. my. I think my sister has that on her um her wedding photo that she has on the table. I think it's inscribed on the frame, or at least it used to be. But you see that that's a very common quote as married now. Um, now Sophia ain't no pushover. Okay, she will tell Harpo to come hold the baby so she can tend to other things. And of course, Harpo has only really had his dad as an example of a husband. But his dad also only really marries pushovers. And you can tell that Harpo actually really loves Sophia. But he also tries to put his foot down, often to no avail, because Sophia ain't having that. So he goes to talk to his dad. And Mr. recommends hitting her, duh. He says wives are like children. Gotta let them know who has the upper hand. So Harpo goes back home, demands to be fed. And Sophia tells him his pie's in the pantry, you good. And he wants her to get it. She's out in the field tending to the crops and hanging with Celie. She hears the baby crying, so she hands the rake to Harpo, tells him to be useful. He looks at Celie and says, rhetorically kind of like, what am I going to do about Sophia? Celie looks him dead in the eye and says, "Beater, We are definitely discussing this later, child. Next day, Sophia comes stomping through the cornfield looking for Celie with a black eye. It's like barely black, but you can tell she got into a little scuffle. She says, you told Harpo to beat me. Meanwhile, Harpo with a big black eye telling his dad that a mule beat his ass and busted him up. Yep, mule. Got it. (laughs) Got it, Harpo. So then we get this bomb ass speech from Sophia. All my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. I had to fight my brothers. Girl, child ain't safe in a family of men's, but I ain't never thought I'd fight in my own house. I love Harpo. God knows I do, but I kill him dead before I let him beat me. Now you want a dead son-in-law, Miss Seely, You keep on advising him like you doing. And Celie looks at her and says, this life be over soon, heaven lasts always. <laughs> she said, "Girl, you better bash Mister's head open and think about heaven later, child." Sophia, do not play with that ass. So now Sophia and Harpo start beating each other, in between all these kids they having, and finally Sophia gets fed up and leaves with all the kids. Meanwhile, Celie's still waiting for that letter nothing but she can feel something a change is coming one rainy evening a carriage pulls up to their door and Celie opens it looking to see who it is and it's mister but there's a pair of heels hanging out the back shug Avery Now, Celie runs upstairs to change dresses and try to make herself look more presentable for this gorgeous lady that she's only heard tales of all these years. Also, the kids have been putting mud on her face. She got mud all over her face. She comes back down to help her into the house and Shug, drunk as a skunk and seeing her for the first time, looks up soaking wet. A slow smile forms on her face and she says, you shoal is ugly and cackles in her face poor child now suge is mean to albert saying she don't need no boy who couldn't say no to his daddy and marry the woman that he loves she needs a man he trying to tend to her every need and suge don't want none of it and this whole time Celia didn't even know mister's name was albert So now he downstairs trying to cook for sugar. the truest definition of if he wanted to, he would, okay? Celie is giggling, watching him stumble around like a child in his own kitchen, not knowing where anything is. He trying to get the stove hot. It's not heating fast enough with the wood or the paper. He hitting his head on stuff. This dummy goes out and gets kerosene. When I tell you, she was sitting on that chair giggling at him. When he pulled that kerosene out, she dipped so fast out that chair. The chair was still rocking and she was gone. Of course, the food burnt. Shug, he tried to get that food to Shug and she threw the whole plate out onto the wall. So now, see make breakfast. Pancakes, eggs, grits, biscuits, a huge piece, a huge honk steak-sized piece of country bacon and coffee slid the plate on in quiet and fast didn't even say nothing and then she sat back outside the room and waited Suge ate all that food still mean as all hell but she took that food now later Celie is trying to give her a bath and Suge is getting drunk in the tub Celie asks her if she has kids and she says her kids are with her parents because she thinks Kids don't come out right if their dad ain't around. And through red and teary eyes, she said, all children ought to have a paw. She asked Celie if her dad loves her. Celie gives her a, like a look. It's like a hard to describe look, but it's like, it's like if you only knew how much my dad loved me. No, but yes. Mm-hmm. Shug tells Seeley, my paw loved me. My paw still loved me. Except he don't know it. Shug clearly has, like, daddy issues to the max. Like, she ain't talked to Lee about much or nothing, but she out here talking about her daddy. Meanwhile, well, Albert's dad showed up, a short man, but still sizes Albert up like he's a small boy until he sits down, he's come over to chastise Mr. for taking Shug in. Even after all these years and all his wives, he still offers his disapproval about Shug. And while he's out there talking shit, Seely spits in his water before she offers it to him, and he drinks the whole glass. Now, six years later, it's 1922, and Harpo is busy, busy, busy. He and his fine-ass friend Swain, who is played by a young Lawrence Fishburne, who was fine, fine, have been working on building a juke joint, a club of sorts, back in the woods, appropriately named Harpo's. And Shug Avery is performing on opening night. Now this is the first time we actually get to hear Shug sing and Siskin blow. She has on a red sequin dress and a headpiece with feathers on top, and she sings with her whole body. And men are eating it up. With one guy even saying, "I'll drink your bath water." Now, of course, Mr. is smitten and Celie's there too, with a little gleam in her eye because, you know, she loves smitten, too. Everybody is all over each other, but people are talking shit about Celie because she dressed so fa- plain at this like fun juke joint. But, you know, she ain't never faced. And there's also a church service that's going on right across the way. So the whole scene, there's a lot going on. While Harpo's greeting people, he also gives a little kiss to his new lady, Squeak. Huh. Now, after a rousing musical number, Shug pauses and announces, this one's called Miss Seely's Blues. And of course, she looks right at Seely And she says, she scratched it out of my head when I was ailing. Now, Mr. looks downright sick because Suge ain't never wrote a song for him. But Seeley, she's the center of the room right now. And Suge comes right over and sings to Seeley. Now, I'm not going to sing the whole song, I'm just going to sing the beginning. And then I'm going to just read you the lyrics of the song so you can know what they are. Sister, you've been on my mind. Oh, sister. With two of a kind soul sister, I'm keeping my eye on you. Okay, that's all I'm giving y'all. Um, I bet you think I don't know nothing but singing the blues. Oh, sister, have I got news for you? I'm something. I hope you think that you're something too. Oh, scuffling, I've been up that lonesome road and I seen a lot of suns going down. Oh, but trust me, no low life's gonna run me around. So let me tell you something, sister. Remember your name, no twister. Gonna steal your stuff away, my sister. We sure ain't got a whole lot of the time. So shake your shimmy, sister. Because, honey, the sugar is feeling fine. Yes, girl. I literally get choked up every time because it's such a beautiful moment between two women. With one woman basically telling this other girl, don't let nobody steal your shine. Hold your head up. These men ain't shit. Sister, it's me and you. And baby, Albert looks downtrodden he won't even look over at her the whole room is looking at Suge and Celie and he's got his head down sad sack of a man but that amazing moment is cut up when Sophia walks in with her new bow, and she's blabbing about how the place used to be her house and how it used to look and she spots Celia and greets her so warmly saying how good it is to see her And Albert tells her to pull up a chair. And once she introduced her friend, Henry Broadnax, with his cute-ass dimples, Albert asks where her chillin' are. She say... At home, where yawn. (laughs) I love her. So, this whole time, Harpo is hiding in the rafters and he falls right next to this table. He falls out of a roof like at least, I think, four or five times during this movie. And he starts saying how she should be home with the kids. She ain't fazed by this man and Henry is chilling too. All of a sudden, Harpo grab her hand and say, let's dance. Henry looks over at Albert and says... First time I ever been knocked out without a punch. (laughs) Now, Sophia is all giggles. And at first, Harpo's trying to keep a mad face, but he can't because Sophia's his boo. But, mm, Squeak come around that corner and she is not happy. Harpo! Who this woman? (laughs) And Harpo's like, oh, you know who this is. Well, she better leave you alone. Sophia says, she's like, no problem. Fine with me. But Harpo says this is his juke joint. And Sophia ain't got to go nowhere. What the hell? It's Harpo. Anyway, Squeak calls Sophia big old heifer. Ha <laughs> ha ha. And Sophia says, like I said, fine with me. And you could tell she trying to hold her shit. Squeak slaps her in the face. Well, piano player packs up. Guitar player packs up. And they know it's night-night time because Miss Sophia don't slap. She got fists. She got hands. She knocks Squeak out of a hole in the flow into the swamp. And somehow, this starts a whole bar brawl. Meanwhile, is having a good old time just watching all this happen and minding her business. She tries to watch the whole fight, but Suge comes and quickly scoops her up to get her out of there. They go back to Suge's dressing room and Suge lets Celie put on the red sequin dress she had on along with a big red headdress. Celie comes out awkwardly strutting and Suge is like, yes, girl, you could catch a fish without a hook trying to boost my girl head up. And Celie is smiling, but, you know, she always covers her smiles with her hand why you always covering up that smile? Show me that smile, pretty girl. So Suge kind of dances her around the room, suddenly spinning her around to a mirror and holds her hands down. And Seely keeps trying to pull her hands up to cover it. But eventually she bursts into this huge laugh with the biggest beautiful smile. Like it's so gorgeous. And she laughs for a good amount of time. She's never seen her laugh before. I don't think she's ever seen herself look so happy. But Suge says it's September. It's about time for her to head on back out. And Celie looks sadly at her and says, he beat me when you're not here. Suge asks her why. And Seely says, he beat me for not being you. My heart breaks every time she says that. So... They sit and talk. And Celie finds out that Suge still loves Albert and would have married him if he wasn't so weak and had actually fought for her. And she even likes having sex with him, which Celie literally cannot believe. She says he's never asked her what she likes and he just climbs climbs on top of her and does his business. Suge says she makes it sound like he's going to the bathroom on her. And I mean, he might as well be as far as Celie's concerned. So Suge said... Baby, that means you're still a virgin. Celie says, yeah, because nobody loved me. And you think I'm ugly. But Suge was really just jealous that Celie married Albert. And didn't think realize how bad it was for Celie. But Suge thinks that she's beautiful. And then she kisses her. Kisses her cheek, forehead, other cheek, then lips. And Celie stops her and laughs a little bit. But then Celie quickly kisses her back to giggles. But then Suge gives her a real kiss. Puts her hand on her shoulder. Very gentle. Suge is like honey. And Celie's like a bee at this point. So the next day, Suge heads to church. And the reverend at the church is sweeping up when she walks in. At first, he doesn't recognize her, but when she steps in and asks how he's been, he ignores her and continues to sweep now that he recognizes her. She keeps trying to talk to him, remind him of when she was a little girl and how she used to be in awe watching him preach. She starts to sing, God is trying to tell you something and he can't take it. He has to hide his his tears and head back to the office. And Suge says she understands that he can't speak to her. She just wanted to say hello to her dad. So Suge says she's heading back to Memphis and Celia is quickly trying to pack up a little bit of stuff, hoping to leave with her. She's trying to hurry so she can sneak out, but Mr. catches her. She tries to say she isn't doing anything, but of course he can tell. And when they walk Suge to the car to get her out of town, Celie runs up to ask to come with her. But She can't get it out. All she can get out is, I's going to miss you. And just like that, her one little bit of hope drove away. Now, Sophia is in town with her kids. The mayor's wife, Millie, is trying to pinch the kids' cheeks and all that mess, all in their face, and they clearly don't like it. And even the mayor, her husband says, leave them kids alone. But of course, she takes her entitled ass over and starts kissing all over the kids and shit. And then she says, they're so clean. And I asked, Millie, asked um, Sophia, would you like to be my maid? Now, you know Sophia got a grade A attitude, and she ain't no fucking maid. So she says, hell no what hell no so now the mayor walks over and asks her to repeat herself and she says i said hell but she gets cut off with a slap lord no miss sophia please don't do it please this ain't the right crowd this ain't the right place but you know she don't like to get hit and she cocks back and punches the mayor A crowd of white people run at her and circle her, calling her all sorts of insults, yelling. And she tells Swain to make sure her kids get home. She's scared and calls for the sheriff to help her. He comes over and hits her in the face with the butt of the gun and knocks her out. Flash forward to 1930. Sophia's been in jail for eight years. Her eyes busted. She got a limp. She is a pitiful shadow of her former self. Hardly even talks. And the mayor is bailing her out to be Miss Millie's maid. Literally adding insult to injury. She is injured and they are adding insult to it. But Sophia is docile. And now she's stuck with Millie forever. And Millie is a talkative and very annoying woman. Sophia's been teaching her to drive and she is not good at it at all. They get back in the car and Millie tells Sophia that since the next day is Christmas, she's going to drive her home and let her stay all day. So she literally has not seen her kids before, since before she went to jail, before she leaves. Um, Sophia spots Celie and Celie gestures for her to keep her chin up just real quick. And Sophia looks at her and says, thank you. Next day, these kids get to see their mom that they haven't seen in literally eight years. Her youngest comes and says, my name is Emma. I'm very pleased to meet you. It's a beautiful family moment. Millie leaves and says she'll be back to pick Sophia up around five. And Sophia goes in the house and there's so many people there. She starts to cry because she says she don't even know them anymore. And she is surrounded with love and hugs. Outside, Millie can't figure out how to leave. The guys are trying to help her, but of course, she panics because there's a whole bunch of black dudes surrounding her car. She's screaming about how she's always looked out for the colors and please leave her alone. Don't touch her. Sophia comes out to check on her and she starts saying that these colored boys attacked her and crying and saying, how could you leave me alone for this long? So even though Sophia was supposed to be able to be with her family all day, she has to drive Millie home and literally got to be with them for about 15 minutes oh okay so it's 1936 six more years have passed albert and seeley wake up to the sound of a honking car horn suge is here and this time they're both excited they jump up throw on robes and run out to greet suge and apparently her new man grady her husband surprise well after a few drinks Albert and Grady are chopping it up, having a good old time, talking about how they done both had Suge. Meanwhile, Suge runs out to see if she's got some mail. And while she's out there, she sees the Reverend riding by and quickly tries to tell him that she's married now. But he keeps on riding. He's gone. So Suge checks the mail, heads back in, tells Celia to come upstairs with her. In her hands, she has a letter addressed to Celia from Nettie. Celia drops the letter, can't even hold it. It's from April 18th, 1935, a year before, and it's taken that long to get there. Nettie says she's been writing, but she's sure that Albert's been taking the letters, so she only writes on Christmas and Easter now in case he gets some like holiday spirit or in case it just gets lost among some of the holiday mail. More than anything, I love you and I'm not dead. Wow, like just the comfort of knowing that Nettie is still alive. So basically what ended up happening was the lady that Celie met in town with the baby that she thought was Olivia, um, her and her husband, Samuel, are super religious, super nice. They ended up taking Nettie in and Nettie found out that they had adopted two children, Olivia and Adam. And Nettie is taking care of them now. So they're actually with their family, her kids and Nettie are all alive. So while the men are drunk, Celie and Suge start looking for the lost letters and they tear that place up. Drawers, cabinets, trunks, until Celie sees a hole in the floor. He's got naked pictures of white ladies and some money and the letters. So many letters. She's been writing her all this time. She and Suge put them in order by postmark and she found out all about Nettie's adventures, including taking a mission trip to Africa. Her children and her sister have been in Africa. Meanwhile, in between reading these letters, you can tell Celia is fed up with Albert and it's starting to show. And these letters that she's reading are descriptive, filled with the sights, smells, and sounds of her travels. As she's finishing one of the letters, Lost in this World, Albert comes and slaps her on the face so hard that her nose bleeds, all because he's been calling her for a shave and she didn't hear him. Out by the water, Suge asks some kids that are passing by where Celie is and the kids, they say that she's at home about to shave mister. Now, Suge was painting her nails but she slowly stops when she realizes what may be about to happen. Celie is sharpening that blade with malice in her eyes and this is intermingled with clips of uh, Nettie and the kids at an African tribal ceremony where the children coming of age have a small cut put on their face. Albert insults her, calls her slow, and screams at her to hurry up. Do me right now! All right. And all this time, Suge is racing to that house because she has a thir- uh, sixth sense that she knows what's about to go down. The tribal music gets louder. The singing gets louder. And Seely tells Mr. to put his head back. And as we see these children waiting while the music swells and they get these ceremonial slits on their face albert looks up to see suge holding celie's arm back while celie has pure murder in her eyes suge says i don't think this blade looks sharp enough but albert knows what's up he gets it he just says crazy women and goes on about his business but he knows so that evening they have dinner there's celie albert albert's daddy suge and her husband, Squeak, Harpo, and Miss Sophia was able to come on home. She says she confused, but she there. So, Suge tells Albert that she and her hubby are heading out soon. And they're taking Celie with him. Well, he clearly ain't having it. But Celie ain't having nothing that he's having. So, she's about to let him have it. Thank you very much. She says he took Nettie away from her. The only one that loved her, the only thing in the world that loved her. But she says that Nettie and her kids are coming home and they all gonna whoop his ass. And she says Albert's kids made her life hell, but that's because they daddy is dead horseshit. Now Squeak laughs and Harpo tells her his bad luck to laugh at a man. Well, Sophia at this point starts cackling like crazy cackling. She says she's laughing because she's had enough bad luck to laugh for the rest of her life. She looks at Celia and says she knows what prison is like. She know how Celia feels. To want to sing and have it beat out of you. Want to go somewhere. Can't. But she said that day that she saw Celia at the store with Miss Millie. She said, I know there's a God. I know there's a God. And one day I was going to get to come home. Well, Albert throws his dumb ass two cents and says he not going to give Seeley one dime. And she goes off. She said, did I ever ask you for anything? I never asked you for anything. Not even your sorry ass hand in marriage. Now, Squeak says she going with Suge and Seely too. And while we at it, her name ain't Squeak. It's Mary Agnes. Thank you. So now Albert's dad says he's crazy to let these women insult him at his own table. He tells Seeley. Um, so now um, Albert tells Seeley that Shug has talent, but she's ugly, skinny, shape-funny, and scared. She asked him if any more letters came. He says, could be, could be not. My good girlfriend, Miss Seeley, grabbed a knife, put it right to his throat, and said, I curse you. Until you do right by me, everything you think about is going to crumble queen yes yes i think at least 60 percent. i know at least 60 percent of black women i don't know about the other women all the other women but women who have seen the color purple at least i think at least 60 percent of them have said this at least in their head because i know i done said until you do right by me everything you think about gonna fail Ooh, but suge tells her to just chill go to the car. And Sophia is literally crying and saying, he ain't working on the prison over, girl. Don't switch places with me, baby. And he tries to get his final digs in, come outside to her. And he say, you black, you poor, you ugly, you a woman, you nothing at all. She said, the jail you plan for me is the one you gonna rot in. And he tries to pick up his hand and hit her one more time. And she put that hand up like she got the fucking force. Like she is a Jedi. Stops him in his tracks. She said, everything you done to me, already done to you. I'm poor, black. I may even be ugly. But dear God, I'm here. Yo, I think this is, like, the third or fourth point, like, where I cry every time I watch this movie. Everything she's been through, and she rides off with this big smile on her face, says, I'm here. Dear God, I'm here. She went from saying, I don't fight. I just do what I do to stay alive to being able to say, I'm here. Jesus. Ooh. On a train, there's a girl in a white dress that's running beside the train that they're on and she's waving. And she looks just like Nettie as a young girl. And Celie takes a handful of chocolate coins and throws them to the girl. And it's this beautiful moment. Back home, it's all bad for Albert. His farm is run down, houses in shambles. He drunk all the time at Harpo's. He's at last call. And Harpo and Sophia are coaxing him to head home. Before he leaves, he's drunk singing but he turns and tells them that it's nice to see them back together again and this is probably the softest moment that we've seen him have this whole time Celie now has come back into town her dad died well the man she thought was her dad apparently Nettie told her that her real dad was lynched when she was and her mom married this new guy when she was about two years old so Paul, not pa her kids, and her siblings. And the old house, her old house, actually belonged to her mama. Well, it belonged to her real dad. Her dad left it to her mom, and then her mom left it to her. So now that her stepdad is dead, the house belongs to Celie. So she's got a house. She ends up opening a tailor shop in town, making one size fits all pants. She is doing well. So one evening, she's helping Sophia and Harpo find some like a little matching pants set. And she glances out the window to see Albert waving. Ciao. Bye. Meanwhile, she and Suge are okay, but, you know, like not okay. Still longing. And they end up having a conversation about how God needs you to admire his work. And Suge says, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field and don't notice it. Everything want to be loved. Us sing and dance and holler, just trying to be loved. Now, later on, after this beautiful conversation, they're having a time at Harpo's and Suge is singing Miss Ely's Blues because Miss Ely's Blues done blew up at this point. Meanwhile, there's a church service going on and the choir is trying to combat the noise from the club. And they decide to sing, God is trying to tell you something. And so they start, and Suge, in the middle of her song, stops. Because you know, this is her song. She can hear it. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak to me. Speak to me. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. The whole joint leaves and follows Suge singing all the way down to the church. All like, uh, 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 like a parade line following her to this church. She gets there. She opens the doors of the church wide with the crowd behind her, tears streaming down her face, looking at her father, singing, God is trying to tell you something, singing with her whole chest. This is cry number five for me, I think. He ends up coming down from the pulpit. And she said, see, dad, even sinners got soul." And he, tears in his eyes. Finally, hugs her. Ah, <sighs> yes. Meanwhile, Albert back at home gets a letter addressed to Celie to the house from immigration. So he goes right to his lockbox, takes out some cash, heads to the immigration office. Wonder what that's about? Well, a while later, Suge and Squeak are standing outside at Celie's um, home and they see a car pull up, but Celie isn't expecting anybody. As they emerge from the car, Celie can't believe her eyes. Adorned in beautiful colors is her sister standing with a crew of people. And she calls out, Nettie! And Nettie can hardly get out. Celie! Oh! They run to each other and they embrace. 28 years later and it's like Celie is literally a kid again. Can't even talk. She hugs Nettie. And then she hugs her children, Adam and Olivia, who have never even met their mother, only knew their embrace for a moment after birth. And that's it. And Adam has a wife who she also gets to meet. They don't speak English, but Nettie is able to translate for them. And as Shug looks out into the diff- distance, she can see Albert looking on with a small smile with his horse. He actually did right by Seeley. And didn't even come and tell her about it, asked her for anything, rubbed nothing in her face, nothing. He just did it. And as the sun sets behind them, the sisters play their favorite game, maki dada. So I want to talk about a couple themes, and I also want to talk about my personal relationship with this movie. First, um, my personal relationship, I've seen this movie probably about seven or eight times. I think the first three times I saw it. Um, I was under 18 and had not really experienced life in a way to be able to understand the pain and the hardship that these women went through. I think the first time that I actually cried watching this movie was when I was about 20. Um, But I was crying in more of a like, men ain't shit kind of way. Because for me, this movie read as men ain't shit when I watched it when I was like 20. And then when I was like 25, 26, and I got older, and I realized how much this story like talked about womanhood and about love and all of its forms it took on like a whole new meaning for me and now every time I watch it I can't help but cry 30 times y'all know I cry watching everything but I cry watching in this movie so much um but I do want to talk about some of these themes that we see in the film Now, some of them are very apparent, the hardships of women, Black, being Black, and the Black woman experience in this time, and um, like some of the reversal of generational curses. um, But there are a few things that stick out to me, right? So the first thing is the inevitability of assault, right? Now, when Seeley leaves Nettie with her dad, she worries about how long Nettie's gonna be able to hold him off. Then Nettie shows up to stay with her knowing that Albert's initial wish was to marry her at the ripe age of 11 or 12 anyway. But it was easier to go there than to continue to live with her father, um, who she knew has access to her that she wouldn't be able to like deny him after a while. And in that room that night, while they're laughing and giggling by candlelight, they come up with a plan to teach Celie to read for when Nettie inevitably has to leave to escape assault. The plan was not how to not get assaulted. The assault was inevitable for them. They knew that it was going to eventually happen. The goal was to stay in touch with each other after that. The scene when he tries to force Nettie into those trees It's kind of like a horror film and it's not filmed from any like awkward angles or using weird camera tricks or with weird music. As a matter of fact, it's mostly silent, silent except for Nettie's pleas just to go to school. She doesn't even really say like, why are you doing this or ask him to stop? She just continues to tell him she has to go to school. Albert doesn't even speak throughout the scene because he knows he doesn't have to talk. He's not gonna try to convince her because he's gonna take what he wants anyway. And if he does get it now she's spoiled she's ruined not assaulted by a vicious attack attacker. she's soiled. The moment that she emerges from those trees running from her for her literal life we know she's as good as gone but damn it she fought. And as heartbreaking as her departure is, we are proud and somehow know that she'll be okay because she's a fighter, even in the face of the inevitable. But how sad is it that they had a plan prepared for when this assault would inevitably happen because they knew in the time and with the experience that they had, there's no way to get away from it. Sophia says the same thing a girl ain't safe in a house full of men it's gonna happen because these men know that they have the upper hand they know that they have the control and they know that these women especially at this time didn't have anywhere to go where they could report this or where they could stop it the police weren't going to come and arrest these men they were going to look at these women and think that they did something to entice their father they did something to entice their brother and now it's just more people knowing that they had sex with one of their family members. How sad is that? This leads me to the next thing that I wanna discuss. So Harpo and Sophia love each other. This is the closest example that we have of an honest courtship, and it's far from it. There's a story here though. Harpo comes to his father to ask if he can marry Sophia, who is already carrying his child. And Harpo clearly communicates that he loves this girl. Albert tries to protest the courtship, much like his father did to him when he asked to marry Suge, who he loved. Here's the difference, though. Suge was always trying to replace her father. So she knew that if Albert wasn't strong enough to defy his father, she didn't want him and another man would be just as fine. But Sophia loved her harpo specifically loved harpo that was who she wanted he was just the kind of dopey and gentle man that sophia needed after living in a house with all men bold aggressive men and she was the super strong woman that he couldn't run over that he had never had in his life most of his life his he either had his mother who had passed or Celie, and both of them were docile women who let themselves be controlled and beaten. But abuse is invited back into her home by a woman that she knows and trusts, her own mother-in-law, Celie. We expect this from Albert. He's been an asshole since we met him. But why would Celie recommend abuse? It's all she knows. She's never had a man treat her with love and respect. Her own father raped her, then called her ugly constantly. She was married off out of her own home, into the home of another man who didn't even want her, who would just beat, use, and insult her. Nettie was the only one in her life who treated her like a person And she was taken from her in her most formative teen years, years when we need validation from somewhere to frame our view of ourselves. Even more, Nettie is a woman. Nettie is a girl. And a lot of us, we seek the approval of a man. We seek a man to tell us that we are beautiful, that we are valuable, that we are loved, we are wanted. And this was a time when women required a man in order to be able to live, to survive. And look, I know how uh, we harp on how horrible TV and media can be in kids and teens' formative years sometimes, but sometimes it's the only thing that these kids have that let them know that they're worth more than the things that they're used for, or worth more than the way that they're treated. And Celie didn't have access to any of that. So when HARPO asks her how to control Sophia, she literally says the only answer she knows, the only answer that she can think of, Peter. It's a sad reality for us, but it's the only reality that makes sense to Celie because she can't see a world where a man values or loves the woman that he's with. And sadly, it's this abuse and eventual separation that leads to Sophia's anger issues because she realizes that the only way that she can get respect is, is with her fists she learned that in her own home with her father and her brothers but she thought that she had been able to escape that with Harpo until abuse was brought back into her home and she realized or thought that the only way that she could garner respect was through her fists and it eventually got her into trouble which is one of the saddest things last theme I want to talk about is of course love now all of the characters here are seeking love but as I said the only romantic love story here is Harpo's not even really Sophia's Suge is constantly chasing her father's love Celie is chasing Nettie's love Albert was emasculated by his father and couldn't marry the love of his life and then again denied by Nettie so he's buried that shame of not getting the love that he wanted and turned it into anger Towards Celie, Harpo is in love with Sophia, but constantly chasing his father's love and approval. So he's um, going back and forth about how to handle his own marriage. Sophia is a vision of love, being her own self until she literally has it beaten out of her. Until we watch her at the end of the film, fall in love with herself, All over again through seeing Seeley's strength. Now, along with Nettie, Seeley clearly develops feelings for Suge, but it's only hinted at in the film version. Now, Steven Spielberg said in a quote, there were certain things in their relationship between Suge Avery and Seeley that were finely detailed in Alice's book that I didn't feel could get the PG rating and I was shy about it. In that sense perhaps I was the wrong director to acquit some of the more sexually honest encounters between Suge and Seeley because I did soften those. I basically took something that was extremely erotic and very intentional and I reduced it to a simple kiss. I got a lot of criticism for that. Now, in watching the film, we can clearly see that Celie even starts to look different after her encounter with Shook, even if we don't know what has happened. Her hair is more kept, her clothes are a bit more tailored. And when Shook comes back with her new husband the second time, Celie comes downstairs wearing this floral nightgown and robe that seems almost like sexy. But this was something that Celie Sleeps in without Suge being there. So this isn't something that Suge has influenced and she's saying, oh, I'm gonna put on this sexy robe because Suge is here. Her whole personality has changed through Suge. Even without being depicted, we can see the post-orgasm glow up. I was um, actually just on a podcast that will be coming out in a few weeks and I'll fill y'all in when it releases. But one of the hosts, who's a, a male, mentioned that it's much easier for a woman to find a man to have sex with than the reverse. Now, I agree, definitely, but women are unfortunately not guaranteed an orgasm every time or ever. So let me tell you, that first orgasm as a woman will brighten your whole world up, it will clear your acne, it will cure a headache, it'll get rid of a backache, it'll clear your sinuses, it'll, um, it'll get rid of all of your, it'll make your ass fatter, all that, so all this time, Celie has never felt a tender touch, and she gets it, From the woman, not only the woman that she's been idolizing from the nightstand, but also the woman that her husband has always wished she was. The woman that her husband has been longing for. And this woman is the woman that makes her feel good for the first time and helps her to see how beautiful she really is. This feeling is even further cemented when Shug ends up being the piece that helps her to hear from her sister again. Shug also takes Celie from that house and finally helps her escape. Shug is the missing piece of her that slowly helps Celie to make herself whole and find the courage to finally live instead of just survive. And once Celie learned to truly love herself, The universe had no choice but to bring Nettie back to her because it was the real missing piece in her life. This movie is beautiful. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress for Whoopi Goldberg, Best Supporting Actress for both Oprah Winfrey and Margaret Avery, and Best Adapted Screenplay. But it did not win a single award. And Steven Spielberg didn't even get a nomination for Best Director. It had um, the mo- the record for the most nominations without a win at the Academy Awards since The Turning Point, which came out in 1977 at the time. And it got uh, four Golden Globe nominations, um... Whoopi Goldberg won Best Actress in a Drama at the Golden Globes, and Spielberg actually did receive a Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement for this film. It's an amazing piece of cinema, y'all. It's currently on HBO Max. Um, I mean, unless they took it off and only had it on there for Black History Month, which I hope they didn't because that would suck. But if it's still there, it's on HBO Max. But it's also available for rent and purchase on other platforms, of course. I definitely recommend watching it. The performances are stellar. I can't say enough about how wonderful all of the acting is, especially for it to be this early in a lot of these people's careers. I know I didn't highlight many of the comedic moments in the film, but they're also perfectly timed as well to keep you engaged without feeling off-putting and to give a little bit of lightness to the story that may sound kind of heavy. Um, The music is, of course, fantastic. Quincy Jones is an incredible musician and composer. And uh, there are so many good cry moments in this movie. Uh, It's definitely an emotional one. So it's probably not like an everyday movie, but it is brilliant. If you have a get-together with your girls or a get-together with a couple people or you just want to sit and have a good cry and see women really overcome some shit, I highly recommend giving this a watch. Well, that is all the time we have for today. I am really excited about the movie we're doing next week. We're going to be taking a deep dive into a deeply risque film that changed its genre forever. I don't know if that gives you a clue, but... We'll see. Please follow the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts and rate where available. Check out the Haleif pod Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki. And send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings to here's looking podcast at gmail.com. That's H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N p-o-d-c-a-s-t at gmail.com thanks for tuning in and if i don't see you good afternoon good evening and good night cheers